Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that takes a look back at the movies, shows, and music we loved as kids, and decides if those pop culture artifacts still have any life in them today. I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to accept a balloon from a friendly clown standing in a sewer. I'm Seth Pearson, the co-host most likely to sick balls. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to thrust his fists against the posts and still insist he sees the ghosts. Wow, you actually got that. (laughs) Without a stutter. And I'm Erica, I'm a guest host, and I'm the most likely to participate in orgies and sewers? Are you? (laughs) And in this group? (laughs) No, I mean, I think we've all had a sewer orgy once or twice. We'll learn more about that in this episode. (laughs) Like us, you've probably noticed that everything from our 1980s and 1990s childhoods is new again. Ghostbusters gets a reboot or a remake or a sequel or whatever that movie was. <laughs> Wasn't really sure. It was a gender swap. <laughs> it was like oh, yeah, a that sex too. change. <laughs> or a cash grab, if you will. Exactly. Sex change cash grab. Well, that, that's even harder to say than thrusting your fist against the post. And it's also a band name. <laughs> um, also, Stranger Things basically took E.T., Poltergeist, several Stephen King movies, and our love of Winona Ryder, and turned it all into like a melange of nostalgia, as well as a hit TV show that returns for its second season this month on Netflix. And now we've got a brand new version of Stephen King's 1986 novel, It, making box office records and reigniting the scary clown trope that the 1990 movie likely kicked off. There was never, like, not a period where clowns have been scary since 1990. Clowns have been continuously scary. It's been an uninterrupted reign of terror. (laughs) There's absolutely no denying that Stephen King plays a big role on Stranger Things. And, you know, it's our Halloween episode. So with nostalgia, childhood, Stephen King, horror becoming super relevant again, we decided to take a look back at the 1990 TV miniseries It, as well as the 1986 coming-of-age movie Stand By Me, which is adapted from King's short story The Body. So to kick things off for the Stephen King episode, I'd like to know what your background is of Stephen King. Uh, what movies do you love of his? What novels have you read? Uh, let's start with our guest, Eric. Thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here. Uh, Stephen King is a, is a fun topic. Uh, I, I definitely am. I've always really been interested in, in horror stuff. Uh, and, and Stephen King is sort of was sort of lurking around m- my childhood. Uh, n- not literally, but <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it beyond him. The restraining order, the sewer, yeah, six sewer years. drain, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Those. Uh, I lived in Maine for several years, and he was just always oh. always around. It was it was it was freaky. Stephen King, like I, the, like he had a reputation. Like even when I was a little kid, like that's too scary for you. Uh, you know, it's something that you're you're not allowed to to read or not allowed to see. <laughs> this is like when I was four or five. You know, so by the time I was like eight or nine, I had already checked out like some adaptation on you know that was that was existing at that point and it it in particular definitely lurked as like uh like sort of like the the high point of of uh you know being scared as a kid because of the clown thing and like my aunt would hype it up like you can't read it it's too scary you know the clown all that stuff so uh, yeah yeah my background uh in stephen king is definitely related to sort of the, the reputation more than anything but then you know throughout my childhood i probably saw 
every single one of these adaptations, you know, from like the 80s and, and 90s. So there's that too. So I'm coming at it from all that that stuff. Did you like the movies or you just saw them? Yeah, I just saw them. I, I, I wouldn't say I was sort of an active Stephen King movie fan. Uh, there's really not even one, I mean, maybe The Shining, that I can really point to and say that I love. But they're sort of all, they sort of, you know, as this podcast is doing, you know, it sort of represents like a nostalgia, like a, a childhood thing. And you know, it works out nicely because a lot of Stephen King stuff is about nostalgia on top of that. So... I think especially the, the two movies we're looking at. Nostalgia on top of nostalgia. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's a good description of Stranger Things as well. So yeah. we're, we're, we're tying it all and together. And a few more nostalgias like stuff. Yeah, that's, that's sort of like nostalgia to infinity to the level where you just get, you get lost in nostalgia. You guys, do you remember that time when we were talking about nostalgia? I sure loved it. <laughs> I missed that time. Wow. It was great. I'm going to bring that time back. <laughs> <laughs> but now there are women. <laughs> no, wait, stay- I'm a guy, and all three of you are women. Yes, stay tuned okay. for the next episode of When We Were When We Were Young. <laughs> Seth, what is your background of Stephen King? Um, so, obviously, we're kind of focusing only on two of his prominent movie adaptations, but Stephen King was a foundational element of my taste in scary movies and also in movies about coming of age, like coming of age stories. I didn't see it when I was a child, but like Eric was saying, at the point when it was out and like in pop culture, I was so young that it was conveyed to me as a movie that's like, oh, this is too scary for you. And I never had a fear of clowns. Like, I went to the circus a lot growing up as a kid, and also we had, like, a, at least one, I think it was just one family friend like who was a clown professionally. That is a scary sentence. I had clowns <laughs> in my life. I had his clowns name, in my life too, his yeah. name was John, his middle name was Wayne. I won't say what his last <laughs> name was, because that's not true. But he, he threw really but nice Mr. Gacy parties. was really Really sweet. <laughs> Mr. Gacy was the nicest, you guys. Look, he did not let anyone else in his basement. It was just me. But I think I think actually Gacy was the beginning of the whole like clown fear thing because they really hyped him as like yes. the clown serial killer. So that's sort of the yes, starting point. Yes, and that really captured the national imagination. Yeah. Um, I saw images of Tim Curry in the It outfit, but I didn't watch the movie until just basically this week. But Stand By Me, I saw really young. What year did that come out? 86. 86. I, I, I would have seen the movie by like 1992 or 93. So there was a lot of it that I really just didn't understand because it was coming of age at an age that was that I still hadn't reached yet. You were not of age. I was not of age, but I eventually came of it. <laughs> so yeah, so I've I've obviously like watched and fallen in love with a lot of the other Stephen King adaptations. The Shining, I think, is the one movie left on this earth that still actually scares me. I've really grown to love horror as a genre, and again, a lot of that is thanks to Stephen King. So my uh, history of Stephen King is, I would say I'm a casual fan. King Cash. (laughs) I've read The Green Mile, The Shawshank short story. I've read Misery, and I've read Carrie. And I think that's about it. I tried to read It. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, the word It is going to trip us up every time. I'm like, Carrie's about It? I thought It was about It. (laughs) I tried to read It because I heard it was good. 
Um, I had never read it. And I, when I was 20 years old, I went to Australia and I could only bring so many things with me. And you so I was like, it. I brought it. So, cause it was a huge book. It was like 1200 and pages. And you could live in there if you didn't find another place <laughs> yeah. to live. I had a whole month where I was staying. There was no TV, no internet, nothing to do. And so I was like, okay, I'll get through this 1200 page book. And I got 300 pages in and I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> and I got really, really angry at the book that I had to keep schlepping it around. Yeah. Cause I was, I was traveling through Australia. I had to try. To schlep this book you with me. Thrown it away. Was that it one of those mass enormous? <laughs> don't re- don't resent literature, Becky. <laughs> I did. I resented it. You could have burned so it. So I've never finished it beyond three hundred pages. I couldn't even tell you what was in those three hundred pages. I think I was just like clown, clown, clown. I just want the clown. Where's the clown? I never saw the TV movie growing up, and I was never afraid of clowns except for Attack of the Killer Clowns from Outer Space or killer something. Clowns killer, from killer clowns from outer, outer space. Clowns from that was the movie where I was like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a good movie to not like. (laughs) Honestly, it sounds like your values were just right in alignment. Yeah, and the, all I would say all the books that I actually read of short of Stephen King's, I like the movies a lot. I love Shawshank. I love Misery. I love The Green Mile. Stand by Me. I hadn't read, and I probably saw it when I was little, but I remember it just didn't click with me. You know, I was a little girl, and that movie's not really about. Yeah, I want to ask you about girls. that later because yeah, I wonder how girls feel about them because it feels very much like immersed, like in like boyhood and masculinity yeah, or something like that. I felt I, like, is there even a female on screen in that movie? I don't even know. There's like the, the, mo- the mother who doesn't talk. Yeah. yeah, and the waitress that like comes out and screams about That's cherry right. bombs. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, other than that. Yeah, I just felt like at the time it probably wasn't a movie for me, even though I remember it being like a movie that other people in my life were watching. Like, I remember that vomit scene. Boy people? Um, boy people. Like, the movie was originally titled Stand by He. So <laughs> Man by He? Mm-hmm. I apologize. Stop interrupting with your puns that are terrible. <laughs> well, I you got them all out. Pun. They're done. Okay. I'll get into how I feel about the movie now, but I think back in the day, it just wasn't a movie for me. The main thing that I think about with Stephen King is that there was always a miniseries of his on TV. Like, <laughs> like every single night there was like a commercial like yeah. now for the 20 part adaptation of this book. We're re-airing it again for the 15th time because the ratings are so good. Yeah. Uh, so I never watched any of those, including the movie It. I saw a lot of people had the videotape, which was a double yeah. VHS mm-hmm. cassette. Because it's and, 7 million hours long. Yeah, and I've feel like the fact that it was two videotapes was ex- made it extra scary. <laughs> it was like, this isn't even just one scary movie, it's twice the scary movie. And so I never <laughs> watched it. I just, you know, saw the picture of the clown on it and was kind of like, no. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Not today, Pennywise. So as a kid, I wasn't really generally allowed to watch very many horror movies because I didn't see any rated R movies. But every so often, my parents would make an exception. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that that exception tended to have a lot to do with animals ripping people apart. Because the horror, the first horror movies I did see were The Birds, Jaws, and Cujo. <laughs> Whoa! Okay. So, okay. you know, I guess... Yeah, you and Sarah Palmer from the latest version of Twin Peaks would have a lot in common. <laughs> So I think seeing the movie Cujo made me read the book Cujo, and so that was my first Stephen King book. And I also read The Shining probably before I saw The Shining. Oh, wow. And uh, I know I read The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, so I was, I'm was i familiar with his books, but not super familiar. Like, I read a handful, but never, never it, because I never quite had the year free to take that one on. 
So the inspiration for this Stephen King topic was the return of Stranger Things, even though Stephen King has kind of suddenly been everywhere in the news these days. There's been a lot of other podcasts that I listen to that have been talking about him. So so don't listen to those. Listen only to us. Keep listening. <laughs> you can listen to them after you listen to this. No, that's what Chris is saying. The rest of the show officially does not endorse any No, you should listen to other own. episodes of this show before you listen to other Yes, make sure that you've gone through every episode of When We Were Young three times before you listen to any other podcast. Before we go back into the 80s of Stephen King, let's go back into the 80s of Stranger Things that is a reflection of the 80s of Stephen King because that'll be nice and mind-bendy. The reason I brought Eric for this episode is that he was the one who pointed out how many Stephen King references there were in Stranger Things. I think we were all kind of aware of a certain Stephen Kingness to it, but, you know, I think the main aesthetic that comes out is the E.T. thing, where it's just like you see the kids on the bikes and it feels so Spielberg-y. But once I started, you know, looking at some of those references, I was amazed at how much was liberally <laughs> borrowed from uh, Mr. King. Stranger Things, you know, it's like a cut and paste job a little bit, and it's an admirable one because they did. If you're going to cut and paste an entire show, I mean, you, you probably couldn't do much better than that. But I mean, if you've seen, you know, Stephen King adaptations in the '80s, you've seen coming of age movies in the '80s, and everything from John Hughes to to Stand by Me. Or if you've you know read those books, I mean, there's a lot that you'll you'll recognize in Stranger Things. Stranger Things came out on July fifteenth, two thousand sixteen. It was created by the Duffer Brothers, who cite it as their biggest inspiration for the series. Uh, previously, the Duffer Brothers had begged to do the remake of it, and Warner Brothers denied them because they had not yet done Stranger Things, and so they were thinking about you know, kind of making their own version of it and thinking that a TV show would make more sense because the book is so long and they would want to get into these characters a lot more than a movie would allow them to do. So Stranger Things was born. Uh, it was passed on by a lot of networks who didn't think the focus on kids would work and are now <laughs> sacrificing <laughs> themselves. themselves. Uh, the original title of the show was Montauk because it was taking place in Montauk and then they moved uh, Stranger Things to a... A fictional town called Hawkins, Indiana, because they could then have monsters in that town and it wouldn't be, you know, a problem with real history of the 80s, I guess. Also, Montauk? I think Montauk is a fucking dumb title. But also Montauk is like a beach town. Yeah, and that doesn't fit like the whole yeah. like the suburban. It was yeah. a nod to Jaws. They love they oh. Jaws. Yeah. So, and that's where Amity Amity Island is supposed to be, so... It's, like, off the coast, yeah. But, yeah, that doesn't really fit the whole, like, nostalgia of, like, a suburban town. I agree, yeah. yeah. I think it's better that they changed it. And so the new title, Stranger Things, was a nod to Stephen King's Needful Things. Oh, interesting. To pitch the show, they added an image to the cover of Firestarter and changed the text. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they sold the show. Uh, the love, love the originality here. It's great. Yeah, right. seriously. <laughs> the Duffer Brothers also sent paperback books to the artists designing the uh, title of the show, the graphic art. Um, and almost like 90% of these books were by Stephen King. I'd like to say that my favorite part of Stranger Things is the main credits. <laughs> that is everyone. I was going to say, like, everyone... People have very different opinions of Stranger Things. Some people love it. Some people are neutral. Some people hate it. Everyone loves the theme song and everyone loves mm -hmm. the that logo. I love it. 
The score in general is good, yeah, and all, that makes I think the, the title sequence. And yeah, 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 that's true. So a few of the things in Stranger Things that are kings <laughs> are a girl with telekinesis is very fire startery. Carrie. Mm-hmm. Missing and or dead children is pretty much throughout Stephen King. It's kind of his genre, if you will. Both supernatural and human scale evil. There's a government conspiracy angle, which is also in Firestarter. And of course, there's supernatural stuff. Episode four of Stranger Things is called The Body, which is the name of the story that Stand By Me is based on. I don't think any of this is a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) No. So did you guys watch Stranger Things? Yeah, I didn't really care for it, even though I finished the first season. I thought it looked really cool. I really wanted to like it. I wanted to be in like a Halloweeny mood and like, you know, be scared or I like the kid actors, but I just felt like it was oh, it's just poltergeist and it's it and it's E. T. and it's all these other things it's like I love. Call out the reference basically. That, that's Yeah, it's yeah. like why don't I just go watch Poltergeist? You can play bingo. <laughs> <laughs> like instead of watching the like I was just I thought there was not as much that was original. There's too much that was an homage that just became the basis of everything. Yeah, I mean, so I I really ended up enjoying it a lot because I went into it knowing how much of it was going to be based around homage and references and nostalgia for nostalgic pop cultural things. Um, so I really enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it like I enjoy occasional fast food. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. You know, where it's like, I don't consider it to be like, feeding me anything I've never seen or heard before. I didn't expect it to like be some like crazy out of the box thing. Um, and yeah, like I'm really looking forward to the second season. Cause it definitely looks like they're moving into m- referencing other types of things. I've enjoyed <laughs> um, oh like Lovecraft and like gigantic monster horror kind of movies, but I don't think it's nearly as profound as the people who make it think it is. So I enjoy the hell out of the show. I look forward to the next season, but I don't look at it as anything other than what it is. Like, it's just fluffy, fun that reminds me of other fun things I've seen. Fluffy things. Fluffy things. Yeah. uh, Stranger Things, I mean, is definitely sort of like the comfort food a little bit of of TV shows, but also I think it sort of fits within larger trends. I mean, you go to restaurants now, there's a lot of comfort food that's sort of tweaked out and, and, you know, the price is really expensive. It's sort of like, it's like repackaged for like, uh, you know, people our age or younger. Truffle mac and cheese. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Stranger Things is sort of in the similar vein to that category, I think. Um, yeah, Stranger Things, you know, again, it's you know very well put together, very well made, and, and has has you know some redeemable qualities, I, I think, among it. But you know, also, you know, it's it's built on this sort of architecture of of like you know, not not like nostalgia, like a pain of the past, but sort of like reveling in in nostalgia, like a, like sort of like a really positive nostalgia, like we love the past, we want to relive our past. It's sort of like this circle of like being like a cocoon of nostalgia, like a cotton candy cocoon, which. Relates back to uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I, I, that, I sort of picture like the people that are stuck in the cocoons in, in, in uh, Killer Clowns in Outer Space as being the viewers of Stranger Things, and I, I don't. So just, everybody, everybody. <laughs> also, yeah. it there are cocoons in it. People basically that's right. get there are yeah. Uh, Spider web. So Stranger Things is you know uh, like 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 Chris was saying. I, I mean, it's it's built on Stephen King. It's built on all this other stuff, and you know, it, it's it's fun for that. So unlike most of every single person that I know, I only finished Stranger Things a few days ago. 
uh, I kind of purposefully held off because it was so popular and I was kind of irritated by the mania surrounding it. Yeah, let's talk about that real, real quickly because like, yeah, so a year ago when it came out, I mean, there was this big cult of popularity and it just sort of came up within like a week or two of it coming out, obviously, because you could binge watch it. But they got to the point where like everything you would see for like a week was about Barb or something. And I, my, my joke is like... I <laughs> mean, nominated Barb. My, my joke she is... Became a she became a pop cultural phenomenon, yeah, but, like just that one character. And like you talk about, like, I'm thinking about like a clickbaity title, but it was like how everyone is Barb. I mean, that's pretty much like the mystique that came around that character and, and in turn like around the show during that period. And so, yeah, that's sort of the jumping off point for... Yeah, it was really that, yeah. strange. I mean, I, it was a definitely a surprise hit. I think I don't think that Netflix or anyone was prepared for how big of a phenomenon it was. And just even though this like revival of 80s and 90s culture has been a thing before Stranger Things... I think this really encapsulated it and really like solidified because it's so much an homage and it's so obviously an homage and it's not like a specific remake of anything one thing but it's just kind of a remake of the entire 80s that it really kind of crystallized this moment that we're kind of cannibalizing the past in our current pop culture. But I will say I did enjoy it now that I was able to kind of be divorced from when everyone was talking about it and I could just kind of go back to it and be like, oh, this is fun. I did, <laughs> I appreciate it a lot more now that I rewatched uh, Super 8 last night, mm. which did not hold up very well. Oh, really? I yeah. love Super 8. But really? I, think, I, think, I do. Stranger Things actually pulled a lot from Super 8, though, It too. did. So they maybe did it better. But very then, yeah. weird. Yeah. And I think the new It, um, maybe we'll talk about it later, but like made me, reminded me of uh, Super 8. Mm -hmm. with all the kids and how they talked and their relationships. Yeah, I think that Stranger Things is a much better version of doing that homage. It's a very aesthetic homage, though. It's not really a thematic homage very much. And some of the plot elements are obviously lifted. But when you look at Stephen King, and we'll talk about this, like there's a very different feel to his work. And this is much more innocent. The tone of it is much more Spielberg. Like, And the fact that two of the uh, heroes are... Adults. It's Winona Ryder and David Harbour. And in, you know, a lot of Stephen King's things, adults are horrible people. Yeah, no, it's actually really interesting that as you're laying it out that way, it makes me think of a contrast in the sense that Stranger Things does borrow superficially, and not to use the word superficial to minimize it, but like, on the surface level, a lot of the things are drawn from Stephen King. But I do think it is a lighter show in the sense that innocent kids can eventually be rescued in the sense that some adults do have some idea of what they're doing and are not necessarily corruptible or redeemable. But with Stephen King, there is a strain of darkness and not cynicism, but a real reckoning that there's darkness in every person and that we're all corruptible and that this is a fallen world. And we'll get into it later when we talk about kind of his thematic elements, but there's almost a Christian sense of kind of original sin in the world of Stephen King that I don't think necessarily comes through in Stranger Things, though it's been a minute since I've seen it. Like if one of those kids of Stranger Things like dies, I would be so surprised. Barb dies. <laughs> but that sh <laughs> she, she dies like two, ep two, two episodes in. But like, I mean the four main kids. I mean, yeah. um, or I guess five now because Eleven is like one of the kids too. Um, but like in Stephen King books or, or movies, like 
there's no going back at some point. Like those kids are dead. <laughs> like Georgie is dead. Super yeah, dead. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and, or, but, but you know, of, pet cemetery or things like that. True, like yeah. there's no turning back. Like you, these little kids can die and, you know, be harmed in a very evil way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the, the chances of them being saved at the end are slim. Erica, I see some shaking going on over there. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess there is definitely a little bit of a difference between Stranger Things and Stephen King. I'd say Stephen King has a lot of different modes, though, and I feel like there is sort of like a hopeful, humanistic spirit even within that cynicism. And I don't know if, I mean, Stephen King, in some of the books, he definitely killed off kids, but I don't know if he ever really killed off like a main character, like really far into the story. And in Stranger Things, if you killed off one of the main characters, it would be like, you know, th- that would be something that sort of, I think, strays from also from Stephen King's sort of writing for the most part. I, I feel like, you know, Stephen King and Spielberg, there's definitely a little bit of an overlap in terms of how they handle, like, relationships, how they handle things. When, when you say that you think Stephen King is a lot more cynical, I mean, what are you basing that off of? What, what's, what, what are the key sort of books well, or so I'm, I wasn't, movies? I wasn't saying that he's cynical. I'm saying that it, it's... I, I think his worldview is a bit darker. Every person contains the capacity for good and evil, and part of inhabiting the role of a hero is finding the darkness within yourself and kind of reconciling and integrating those parts of yourself. Whereas I see Steven Spielberg much more as a believer in the purity of innocence, as a th- force that is strong enough to oh, save yeah, the, you. I, I think that that's very true, yes. One thing that struck me about Stranger Things was that it is set in the 80s and it is a time when kind of horror as we know it was still becoming a thing. And so these characters aren't inundated with a lot of pop culture references. And that's one of the things that's really seeped into horror, especially because of Scream. But even I think since then, it's very self-referential. It's it's really hard to believe that people wouldn't be used to some of these tropes by now and that they would still go looking down the dark alley. I did appreciate that Stranger Things takes you back to a time where you can still believe that these characters aren't like, oh, this is just like the 27 movies I've seen that are exactly like this. The problem I had with Stranger Things was that it ripped off some things that weren't from the 80s, like under the skin, the design of the watery place where Eleven, (laughs) that's a a very recent movie. And I wish it had been a little bit more original in those kinds of things and kept the homage strictly to the 80s and to like Carpenter, King and Spielberg and not kind of reference so many other things as well because I think it kind of just muddies the water no no pun intended for that black goo I don't think that's an homage to that movie though I think they just like straight up was like that looks cool let's take it oh yeah I agree <laughs> as opposed to like we're gonna like give an homage to a movie that well, see, most the, people haven't seen this, this question is though whether the entire show though are these homages or are these just ripoffs of stuff from the 80s I mean very it's a very, yeah exactly <laughs> I, I thought they were mostly ripoffs where as I said before I really just wanted to watch the original of that idea or that you know vision as opposed to seeing them do it and, and now we did. So well, that'll take us into uh, the actual 80s, since we've just looked at the fake 80s through the lens of 2017. Also, we'll mention Carrie and The Shining are kind of like their own thing. I would say that those are two movies that are kind of divorced from Stephen King in a way. They're more about the filmmakers who made them and the, like, kind of their own legacy. And so we're kind of looking at Stephen King uh, through the 80s specifically and post-Shining. And surely and hopefully we will cover The Shining and Carrie on their own episodes at a later date. I would love to. 
Stephen Edwin King was born September 21st, 1946 in Portland, Maine. Is anyone surprised that he's from Maine? <laughs> he's the most maine guy. He's the Maine, Maine guy. <laughs> when he was two, his father left to buy a pack of cigarettes and never returned. Damn. When he was four, he came home one day looking very pale and would not speak to his mother. She later found out that he had witnessed a friend being hit by a train. He has no memory of this, and it doesn't appear in his memoirs. But then how did you find out? <laughs> I talked to his mom, of course. I just called up Mrs. King. His first short story was published in a mystery magazine in 1967. He married Tabitha Spruce in 1971, worked as a teacher, and developed a pretty serious drinking problem. He had three kids and published his first novel, Carrie, in 1973, with many more to follow. Wow, that was his first book? Yeah. Yes. Wow. And so he has been insanely prolific. Uh, he has published 54 novels, six nonfiction books, a couple hundred short stories. And by my count, he has 65 movies adapted of them, plus 30 miniseries or TV movies. Jeez, what 30? an overachiever. Right? 30? Yeah, insane. And he also wrote a column for Entertainment Weekly called The Pop of King, <laughs> which is... So let's talk about Stand By Me. It was released in 1986, uh, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon. It's based on the short story, The Body, from the book Different Seasons by Stephen King. That's the same book that has uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and Apt Pupil in it. And one more story that is And not one more movie. story that's never been adapted into anything. <laughs> Until next month. It stars Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Will Wheaton, and River Phoenix as the four friends. Richard Dreyfus is the older Gordy. He's the narrator. It also has John Cusack as the dead older brother and Keith, Keith Sutherland as a bully. <laughs> so this is how I interpreted the cast list of this movie. Because <laughs> uh, I, I hadn't remembered that the cast was stacked with people, but was completely blown away re-watching it this time. So so, you guys, everyone stars in this movie. Teenage John Cusack, Fat Baby Sliders, Wesley Crusher, Teenage 24, Mr. Holland before his opus, <laughs> and Corey Feldman. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's really funny because my cast list for this movie was Studly John Cusack, Hot Kiefer <laughs> Sutherland, Fat Jerry O'Connell, and Alive River Phoenix. <laughs> wow. So, thanks for that body shaming. <laughs> he was fat. <laughs> He had a big face. He, was he called himself fat. Yeah, yes. The budget was $8 million and it made $52 million domestically. Um, the reviews were very positive. Um, currently, if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, they have 91%. Um, uh, Sheila Benson of the LA Times at the time had said that Stand By Me is a great gift, a compassionate, perfectly performed look at the real heart of youth. One of those treasures not to be missed. One of the few negative reviews was from Walter Goodman of the New York Times. He gave it a, like a middling review, um, saying that Rob Reiner's direction hammers in every obvious element in an obvious script. And Stephen King, let's hear his review. He had told Rob Reiner that it was the best film ever made out of anything I've ever written, which isn't saying much. <laughs> <laughs> After Carrie and The Shining, I mean, Honestly. I can kind of understand The Shining, but I don't know what his I don't, yeah, he didn't issue like with Carrie is. Well, and we briefly discussed this off of off mic, but in King's in King's column in the Entertainment Weekly, I think some of us learned that his taste in movies may be a little bad. Just a little, just a little. So, what did you guys think of Stand by Me? Watching it now, I really enjoyed it growing up. And I think as 
like again, like for what it is, I think it's incredibly effective. I think it's really beautiful. I think most of the script is on the nose. It's not a movie that's about subtext. It's very much a movie that's about the panic and anxiety of growing up and realizing you're growing up. And seeing the, again, kind of starting to perceive the darkness that's in the world, starting to perceive the meaning of mortality, and kind of those first times that you reach out in your life with the friends that you're with to try to understand what it means to be a mortal person, what it means to die. Um, Becky, like, as you were saying earlier, I do very much think that this is a movie about boys and boyhood and starting to grow into manhood. Um, and that if if there were female characters in this movie, I think it would have been inherently a more complex and complicated and interesting story. And I wish there had been those characters in it to um, just to deepen the way that all of those events in the plot play out. Um but I just, I really think that the ensemble casting absolutely nails it. Um, especially uh, Wesley Crusher, especially Will Wheaton and uh, River Phoenix's casting and their characters and their performances, I think, are just really very nuanced for how young they are, um, but very organic and believable. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting that you said that you wish that there were girls in it because I am fine with there no be there not being girls. Um, I really loved this movie as an adult. Yeah, I did um, too. And I think it's fine to have a movie that's about boys and how they have their own friendships and boyhood and and I didn't I didn't miss there being women. Like I thought that it was a great example of what it means to be a man or what boys think that is. I thought it was really interesting how the kids had their own etiquette. Like they're constantly like you got to like shake hands this way or like say this thing and I think one of the things that happens a lot in Stephen King books that involve kids is about how they all want to be part of a club or like a membership and they feel like they belong and that they are part of this like grouping that um like in it it's the losers club and in this i don't think they have like a name for it but it's really like they have their own club handshakes it made me watching it this time made me realize what i connected to in stephen king's movies so much when i was younger and it's exactly that because at the time when i first started watching his movies i knew that in my life I felt like I didn't belong in a, in a whole lot of places, like in most places that I was, like in most places that I spent time with people my age, I felt like I didn't belong. And it's really interesting that those aspects uh, stood out to you this time, because they really do, like, it, it, because they're rendered in such a, like, believable way that these people are kind of outcasts in the place where they are and they do kind of form their own community and have their own ways of bonding with each other i'm a little grateful that this movie doesn't have any female characters because there is no orgy in it. <laughs> oh, God. so what you're saying is you prefer all male child orgies Dude, there I don't think no every- orgies no orgies at all okay we need to take a step back okay. i don't think everybody knows that in the book for it there is a scene where they're trying to get out of the sewers and then they th- they're like all like they're kind of like 
in their own worlds and they're like fighting or like not on the same level and so Bev is like you all should have sex with me yeah and we'll get to that later <laughs> so just saying this is what we're talking about with orgies so, yeah, so, so yeah, no. when, yeah when King does throw a female into this dynamic I Bad think we've seen happen. what happens okay so, okay so Stand By Me is definitely feels sort of like asexual a little bit I mean not completely there's some references here and there but it's very much like you know, sort of like before, like, you know, sexual, like, you know. It's a prepubescent exa- story. Exactly. This is more of like a death, life and death loss of innocence, I think. And also, it's about like, you know, how people can change, you know, they're like they're really good friends, at least it seems like that. But at the end of the movie, you sort of get the sense that they sort of drifted apart. It, it definitely, it, it feels like this this was like the pre-lapsarian, like before the fall sort of thing. And I, I guess seeing the body was, was part of the fall. I think that's, I think that's one of the more interesting parts of the movie. Personally, it definitely reminds me of like being a kid, being like a boy to like hang out with friends and stuff and like I, I don't look back on that really as like the fondest memories it just is like okay whatever we, we seem kind of weird back then and I think that reminded me like the most of that uh in this particular story so it, it does it but it's also very much you know this is in the 80s it's an era of a lot of nostalgia I mean you have Reagan looking back and everything it's about the 50s so it also fits with this 80s to 50 nostalgia dynamic that you have where like the 50s was the great period we're going to try to recreate that in the 80s so it, it seems somewhat like a little bit conservative in that sense I, I would say not necessarily politically but just in terms of of looking at things uh, did you enjoy it? yeah I mean I, I, I like it I mean it, that's not necessarily my favorite mode of, of Stephen King but I think I think actually Stand By Me is the best representation of King. So I know we were talking a little bit about like the dark sides of people. I, I, you don't really get that too much in Stand By Me, but I think you know it, it definitely seems, even though it's not like a true horror story, it feels like the most representative of, of King's writing mode, like how he treats his characters, how he sort of privileges childhood innocence, and like you know this this earlier era when when things were good. I feel like that's an important component in a lot of his his writing. You know, even books that don't really focus on kids, it's still sort of there as like a unwritten unwritten sort of thread throughout. So I feel like it's almost. I mean, Stephen King I think likes that that movie more than pretty much any other adaptation. I feel like it also, it's, it's both the story and the movie is probably the most representative of sort of like how he writes and how he thinks about things. Yeah, I actually read The Body uh, in preparation for this podcast because I was not about to read it. So <laughs> it was about one-tenth of the length. Plot-wise, the story is almost exactly the same as the movie. There's very, very few changes. But the story just feels a little bit darker. So I was also yeah, able to appreciate that horror element comes through more in the writing of the story than it necessarily does in the movie. Although the movie is definitely does have a lot of melancholy. You have basically the Stephen King stand-in, Richard Dreyfuss kind of reminiscing on this childhood. And when Stephen King was a boy, he witnessed someone being hit by a train, killed by a train. And that alone kind of seeps into this movie. It's not exactly the same story, but it's pretty close. I think he's even said this, but this is one of his most personal stories, and I think you can definitely tell that. And even though something like It has a lot of extra things, like the bones of this and It are very similar. And so you can really see... This is kind of a window into how personal something like it is, where you wouldn't necessarily think that's very personal just by looking at it alone. But when you kind of view Stand By Me and it together, you can see that there's something that's very, um, very much ingrained from his own personal experience in childhood. Stand By It. One other thing that I thought horror elements in this movie that doesn't have anything, you know, sci-fi in it um, or 
otherworldly is the fact that like in Stephen King movies, the bullies like can will kill you. <laughs> like they will literally like cut you with a knife or like murder you. It's yeah. not just like oh, teasing. Yeah. Like that's a, a thread that I've seen a lot in his movies is like these bullies are hardcore. Yeah, for real. Yeah, that is also a thing that comes through in Stephen King that doesn't come through in a lot of the kind of nostalgic retreads of the same thematic things that he deals with. Is there is that real like there are people who are legitimately evil and it may kind of hint at why they are the way that they are. But yeah, the menace from those bullies is very palpable and real. Yeah. I've noticed that in King's stories, horror is kind of just mixed in with everyday life and it's hard to tell where kind of everyday bad things end and horror really begins. And so this story kind of, it has this, it's not a supernatural thing, but it's a very unusual thing for a bunch of boys to stumble upon a dead body. But they're already dealing with a lot of really heavy issues, especially the main character, Gordy, who's throughout this movie flashing back to his brother who has recently died and his parents have basically gone, just basically given up on life because of it. So, and that is a more normal thing is people do have siblings that die and that's something that could very much happen to real children. So I, even though this story is about something that's kind of extraordinary and something that more or less does feel like a fictional story, it also is talking about these things that are much more mundane. And I think that's an element that Stephen King brings much more directly to his horror movies is making the mundane terrifying and kind of blurring the line between fantasy and reality and horror and real life. I really love the acting of the four main kids. I read that when Rob Reiner was casting them, he pretty much just casted kids who fit the type of like who their character was so that they could really just be themselves on screen. So at the time, Corey Feldman was really dealing with problems with his parents. And if you know anything about Corey Feldman and like he has a lot of drama in his life um, still to this day. And he had like awful stage parents and he was dealing with that. And so when he was like bringing up those emotions on screen of dealing with the character's parents, he was kind of drawing from that. And they also had a lot of time to be together, lots of rehearsal and lots of time to just like be friends with each other so that when they're on screen, Rob Reiner could do a lot of long takes where the kids are just like existing on screen and they would just like feel extra natural and start singing at the same time or, you know, um, you know, kind of just like riffing on each other and it would feel completely natural. Yeah, the friendship between them really does feel really genuine. And I also agree that the child performances are really great, really all around. And the characters are also just really dynamic kid characters. They're kind of a type, but they all have their own individual things. And they're all struggling about things that aren't necessarily happening on screen. Like there are really emotional and just genuinely like heartbreaking scenes when River Phoenix's character and Will Wheaton's characters are talking about like the the death that they've already experienced. Well, it's more explicit in it, but in this movie and the story too, like adults suck. Every single adult is Mm -hmm. pretty much a terrible person. Uh, Teddy's father is a crazy man who burned his ear. Chris is doomed because of his parents' legacy. Gordy's parents ignore him. There's a bad teacher. There's a bad store clerk. There's the bad guy in the junkyard. And even like the older kids are pretty awful. So it's like being a child is really like this sort of safe haven. 
and you do get this sense that every child is doomed in a way to grow up and have to become, you know, something worse than they are now. Like, this is kind of a haven for them. Well, and then I I think just to put a finer point on that even, it's not just that parents or or teachers or whatever are all corrupt or bad. It's more specifically that they can't protect you. And so much of the myth of childhood is that parents and teachers and authority figures are supposed to protect you and nurture you and know what's in your best interest. And it's like for the parents and people and authority figures in in this universe and in King's universe, even the ones who do have good intentions or are good at their core ultimately can't protect you. That's a really big trope of the 80s, actually, that I wish had made it into Stranger Things, of adults being kind of helpless to save you. You'll see that in a lot of 80s horror movies. Adults are pretty terrible in those, too. And uh, in Stranger Things, like the adults are much more how we tend to depict them now, where they are aware of what's going on. They're capable. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and that's also really interesting because of the kind of nostalgia factor that we've been talking about where in the 80s, a lot of it was referring nostalgically back to the 50s. A lot of these new regurgitations of 80s stories and tropes and approaches to storytelling um, totally strip it of any political context. Because in the context of the 80s, the whole Reaganomics mindset was starting to set in that, oh, the government is a problem, that the government isn't supposed to protect you, that the government is this bad entity as well. Um, And so I think you're spot on, Chris, in what you're saying, because it really does kind of, it, it carries that context in it in Stand By Me, even if it's not explicitly at all political in any way. Yeah, the ki- these kids are able to sneak away from their homes and go on a like two-day adventure, like 30 miles away. Without a single missing children yeah, without their parents <laughs> caring. I mean, and I think like the body, the boy that is killed is kind of a metaphor for that, is that like they could just as easily be this boy that wanders off and gets killed by a train and you know the the parents aren't doing anything about it they wouldn't well, I, they I, couldn't. Think, I think that was a different era though i mean i think honestly the, the parents probably would let their kids go camping and not even think twice about it and i mean the kid did die but he was killed by like a a train which is at that period there was always like random deaths like that i mean i don't i don't want to understate it but it was later on probably like in the 70s and 80s we started to have like these moral panics around kids being kidnapped or being molested or something like that that's when you really had the end of this era where kids could just sort of go go off and do whatever they wanted where parents would would sort of chart their every every move i think well so and, and there, there's that an interest me yeah. like wonder what difference our kind of modern political mindset, again, one where no one can actually protect you, where none of the systems of power that exist are actually out to protect and help people. Like, I wonder how those go hand in hand with moral panics and things like that. Let's talk about the pie vomit scene. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have to? So that was the the scene... I always thought it was gross when I was little. Like, I really didn't like gross things, and that was, like, the epitome of gross. And so I would always... The vomit if, wasn't even vomit color, though. I but mean, I was a little girl, and yeah, I thought no, it was I disgusting. Yeah, and so I, I would just, like, fast-forward it if I was going to watch it. Um, well, that makes it grosser because, I mean, it makes sense, kind of, that the people eating the pies vomit blueberry, yeah, but, the, exactly, but then the everyone members, starts vomiting blueberry. Exactly. I'm like, what is going on I think, here? like, real audience members might have thrown up if all the actual <laughs> ones in the, the thing were vomiting, like... 
So, like, I never realized because I kept fast forwarding it <laughs> that <laughs> it's really cartoonish. Oh, it's yes. hilarious. And I mean, he's, I don't ever think like, I must have just like not watched this when I was old enough to really understand what was going on because I didn't understand that like he's telling a story and like the the guy in question is like so fat but like cartoonishly fat like his face doesn't match the rest of the proportions of his body correct um, <laughs> this is and true. just everything is so over the top and like I actually really really enjoyed it this time <laughs> I loved it no and in that the the fact that that scene is happening in the context of him telling a story I really loved Um, because it really does push how cartoonish it is and it totally makes sense in the context of the story. And I like in movies where you have a writer character but you actually they tell a story or there you get some sense of what kind of writer they actually are and i right. and i really enjoyed the sense that they can actually tell stories yeah, yeah. i really like that this both felt like a believable story that a 12 year old boy would write and also kind of felt like a stephen king story very much <laughs> i actually really appreciated it a lot more this time than i ever had before um, because, I mean, obviously Stephen King writes storyteller characters that are very Stephen King-like in a lot of his books and a lot of the adaptations. Um, but in this one in particular, like, I really felt both that it was a genuine expression of his life and experiences and what drove him toward writing, but really organic to that character and the circumstances that he's in and how trapped he feels in his life. And yeah, I mean, my love, my heart for this movie, like grew three sizes watching it this time because <laughs> it really was like one of the best versions of that that I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I like I said, I read the story before I watched this movie and that scene is in there pretty much verbatim. And I was like, well, that can't be in the movie like that would be a weird tonal shift and they're not going to suddenly like sh- switch to that. Or if they do, I don't think they're going to show like they're probably going to cut back to him before you actually see all this vomit happening and nope. I was wrong. <laughs> I was grossed out. I, I love this scene that goes after this too when they talk about Goofy or they're talking about like we talked about all the important things bef- you know, before you're an adult and they're talking about like uh, Mickey's a mouse, Donald's a dog, Pluto's a dog, what's Goofy? And I think that conversation is something that when I was a kid and people would be quoting this movie, I'd be like, yeah, (laughs) what is Goofy? (laughs) That conversation made me really sad because I looked on Wikipedia and they're like, oh, he's a dog. (laughs) And I was like, damn it, like, that ruins, like, generations of people having this debate. I mean, that's a different debate, but there's all this, like, evidence of, like, why he's a dog and it's, like, rooted in this, like, history. And I was like, Because some dogs enjoy clothing and some dogs do not. The end. (laughs) All right. Mickey's a mouse. Donald's a duck, Pluto's a dog. What's Goofy? If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pez. Cherry flavor Pez. No question about it. Goofy's a dog. He's definitely a dog. I knew the $64,000 question was fixed. There's no way anybody can know that much about opera. He can't be a dog. He wears a hat and drives a car. Wagon Train's a really cool show, but did you ever notice that they never get anywhere? They just keep wagon training. God, that's weird. What the hell is Goofy? This movie also has a lot of really great 
tough guy kid dialogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to call out, uh, suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Now, is that is that all in the short story as well? Yeah, for the most part, almost all of the like great dialogue from the movie is in the book. I love that the kids like curse and they just sound like kids that are trying to act tough. You're not taking him. Nobody's taking him. Come on, kid, just give me the gun before you take your foot off. You ain't got the sack to shoot a woodchuck. Don't I'll kill you, I swear to God. Come on, Lachance, give me the gun. You must have at least some of your brother's good sense. Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. What are you gonna do, shoot us all? Always. Just you. The one line that I wrote down is they are in the forest on their adventure and they eat together and then they all share cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And Jerry O'Connell's character says, nothing like a smoke after a meal. <laughs> and it's, I love it. Like, I love their moments where they are aping adulthood and aping adult behaviors. Yeah, and a detail from the book that's also in there is that none of them are inhaling because they would cough and they would be called out as being like pussies. So <laughs> none of them are inhaling and yet they're all like going to town about like how cool smoking is i love the way this movie ends and i think it ends so perfectly with richard dreyfus is an adult now and he's a successful writer he has a nice house so he must have you know had a lot of good books you know hit the charts (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe one about a scary clown (laughs) maybe um and it and i like that he has children and he stops writing and he goes to hang out with his kids. And um, that was something that Gordy had a problem with. And it seemed like he ended that cycle with his own children where his parents were ignoring him. And he didn't allow himself to do that with his kids. He did put his work aside and he went off and was with his kids. And I, and I do like that it ends it that way without hitting that on the nose without mm-hmm. hitting that note on the nose of him like seeing him type into his computer I would not allow the cycle to continue <laughs> yeah but the, um, the the line that he does say that he does write down is I never had friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12 Jesus does anybody and I just thought that was just such a, a perfect ending and a perfect last line for the movie yeah that like it, I really caught my breath like when he did that line like that's it, it's a real emotional button on that whole movie Um, In a very just not at all cloying way. Um, But I do have to say, I screamed in anger when he talked about River Phoenix's character, like, getting randomly killed the week before. Don't read the story. (laughs) That line, uh, the Jesus does anyone, I believe is from earlier in the the actual story. And I, I agree that it was really well used at the end of the movie. I wanted to talk a little bit about how the story goes a little darker than the movie. Like, the ending of the movie is a very Rob Reiner, like, kind of a feel-good. It's still melancholy, but it's not super depressing. In the book, all three of the other kids are dead. Ooh. Ooh. Did Gordy kill them all? No. (laughs) They all died. Gordy's kids did. (laughs) In accidents. And there's also a, a part where... Uh, the Kiefer Sutherland character and like the other guys beat them up and it's like really brutal. Uh, so they there are a lot of consequences for what they did. It's not just like in this one where like they stood up to the bullies and then you know they mm-hmm. went fine. And there's just a lot more 
there's a little bit more description of like how he and Chris, um, because one of the main, I guess, subtexts of the movie is, or it's kind of actually text, is that your friends can drag you down and that if you're a smart kid in this kind of a community, like you have so much against you from actually getting out and becoming successful like the character eventually does. And that I guess he and Chris both do that. And yet then he also gets killed in a, what, like a chicken restaurant or something. I think he gets stabbed. Yeah. He like gets stabbed while trying to break up a robbery attempt. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this really haunting detail in the book where, well, there's two. There's one, they find the kid's shoes uh, next to the tracks, and he's the kid is the body is like twenty feet away, and it and he's like, how? Why did he take his shoes off? And then he realizes that he was like hit by a train and knocked out of his shoes, and he's kind of like obsessed with these shoes. And so that that detail is in the movie, but the shoes are right next to him. Oh, okay. but they they do they reference it real quick. It's real quick. Knocked out okay. of his kids or something. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Also, the Gordy character becomes obsessed with this bucket because the kid went out picking blueberries. And he's like, where's the kid's bucket? Like, he must have left it behind. And he kind of throughout the rest of his life obsesses about going to find that bucket and even and talking about like how pointless it would be. Or even when he's like out with his kids and his wife, he wants to leave them and go find this bucket instead, even though he knows it's kind of pointless and that it would never really happen. So just those kind of darker elements in the story, even though the kind of the on the surface, the stories are the same. The book really does feel a lot more disturbing to me. So Stand By Me is very much an outlier of Stephen King's work because it is more of a drama than it is a horror film. But obviously we know Stephen King mostly as a horror filmmaker. Stephen King had a whole lot of movies in the 80s. There were multiple movies per year and I think almost every year. We kind of watched some clips from some of the more notable ones since we couldn't watch all of the movies. So in 1983, there was Cujo starring uh, D. Wallace Stone a.k.a. E.T.'s mom. Oh, that's who she was! Yeah. It is about a rabid dog that goes on a killing spree and traps a woman and her son in a car. A pinto. Yes. I watched that growing up, but I was really little because my mom loved... My mom loves all these movies, by the way. Loves all these movies. Why is it not a surprise that (laughs) Becky... (laughs) Like, I remember Cujo being on... Pet Cemetery yeah. was a, a dog huge that one. Bit you or something? He bit my sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your mom was still like, hey, let's That on. was a little bit later. That was okay. uh, that was post Cujo. <laughs> now, Becky, just imagine this is your sister he's going after. Well, like that's funny because like Cujo was another of the like, oh, this is too scary for you. But I know that my yes, parents I, loved that fucking movie. Yeah. Even just watching the clip on YouTube was disturbing. Like, yeah, this- I actually would thought it was kind of impressed, honestly. I was too, like a I schlocky B movie, but it was like I was drawn in. I was like, this dog is disgusting, and he is just like <laughs> powering through this car like nobody's business, like a machine. But I'm like scared. And then like he like in the clip we watched, he like bit her, and it was like scary. It, it was, was like so, well made. Yeah, it was surprising actually because I have such a moral revulsion at the idea that a dog would be portrayed as like. The this evil entity. But I thought it was really well done. It actually did kind of make me want to watch this movie. Yeah, I think it's actually a smart horror, like, to be scared of dogs. Yes. Dogs are everywhere. So, yeah. And we see them as kind of universally benign. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the many, many mundane things that Stephen King managed to make into a horror Oh, yeah, what's that? Isn't Christine one of the... We watched a clip from Christine. Yeah, so Christine was also, in 1983, that was directed by John Carpenter, and it was about a classic car that goes berserk. Uh, I think I saw this, actually, when I was a teenager. I think it was another of those horror movies that I might have watched with my mom or something, but... um, we watched some clips of this, and I really... It looked fun. Like, it looked more, like, campy. <laughs> yeah. I actually was like, okay, I've never seen Christine before. And I was watching this clip, and at first I was like, oh, this is really poor filmmaking. And then, like, more and more of the clip, I was like, there is an image of the car on fire traveling down a dark road on it's fire. fucking awesome. And all of it is practical effects, because is this is 1983, effects, right? So, yeah. Like, I was, like, really impressed. I was like, that is a horrifying image. It's a horrifying image. It almost, the clip almost plays like a David Lynch movie in a way. Mm-hmm. But then it also, the <laughs> the overwhelming sense I got from watching the clips was like, Christine looks like a basic instinct type erotic thriller. <laughs> but instead of like Sharon Stone, it's a fucking car. <laughs> but they both encrossed their legs at a key moment. <laughs> right, exactly. Wheels. <laughs> but I, I love John Carpenter. So I'm actually really interested to watch this movie I want to watch now. that too. <laughs> it definitely was one of those jobs that Carpenter took sort of to do, you know, because he got money to do it and it was a studio production. Uh, the budget wasn't that high, but yeah, they, they did a lot of practical effects. Uh, I just saw like a Q&A about it, and I guess that they had someone in the car when it was on fire, and they couldn't see anything, and they were just trying their best. I love it. Someone oh actually God. had to drive the car yeah. while it was on fire. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> oh my God. Practical effects. That's what I took away from all of these clips of all these movies from the 80s, whereas like, I miss practical effects uh, yeah. so much. Yeah, I think that's why a Cujo, like a CGI yes. Cujo would be awful, like yeah. not scary at all. Yeah, <laughs> CGI <no>. Joe. <laughs> What were the other movies we watched? Uh, so there was, um, one of them is The Dead Zone, also from 1983. That's three of them. Uh, the Dead Zone is directed by David Cronenberg, and it stars Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen as Donald Trump, basically. Basically, because yeah. yeah it's about a man who is in a car accident, and then he starts having death-related visions and ends up seeing the future that this politician, this kind of crazy populist politician, is going to do some bad things with nuclear weapons, so he decides to assassinate him. Yeah, that's at the very end, though. So the, yeah. there's, like, a big buildup of, like, he sees all these other things happening. He, like, helps people, but then also they, like, they blame him for it. It's a, so it's, you it's just a, spoiled the whole thing. Yeah, yeah basically. basically. Exactly, yeah. Now you don't need to watch the movie anymore unless yeah. you love David Cronenberg. It's actually really interesting to watch as a cathartic yeah. Donald Trump parable. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because, you know, the, a lot of the first early Stephen King adaptations were all done by sort of, like, auteur directors. You have everything from, like, Brian De Palma to you know, Stanley Kubrick to even, like, George Romero and Toby Hooper, which I guess are sort of, like, like horror auteurs and then you know you, even Carpenter with Christine but then you get into a different phase of uh, Stephen King adaptations a very different phase uh, so there was Children of the Corn which I watched the beginning of and is about a town of evil children who worship something that moves through the stocks or it has a name it's weird it stars Linda Hamilton so that's interesting I had Peter no Horton. idea that Children of the Corn was a Stephen King I didn't either. book have you seen that no I mean, um, I know the trope of the, cr- yeah, the creepy kids. Yeah, there's been like a thousand sequels to that. There has been, yes. After that, uh, that was 84, and so was Firestarter, starring uh, everyone's favorite little 80s blonde pixie girl, Drew Barrymore. <laughs> Time for bed. You can try again at breakfast. Okay. I want to do that again. No, tomorrow. I'm not tired. I want to do it again. I said no. Again. 
And that's one that you can definitely see. Like, Stranger Things is basically like a remake of that because it's yes. about a little girl on the run from government agents who is telekinetic. And yet in Firestarter, she basically just flambays everyone. Fries everyone, dozens of people at the end of the movie. It's pretty entertaining. Um, I loved those clips. Um, what I took from it is that that is that Firestarter is the story about a young woman driving down property values in an <laughs> affluent neighborhood. Because, <laughs> like, at least the parts that we watched, she was just completely fucking up these McMansions. It mm-hmm. was pretty fantastic. <laughs> We, we need one of those today. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's all it. that different from Drew Barrymore's actual childhood, but Just, after that was yeah. a Silver Bullet starring Gary Busey. <laughs> oh, it was like the werewolf movie. Yes. Yeah. Gary Busey. I mean, oh that one God. just, honestly, I love Gary Busey, like unironically love him, especially like in this era. But this just looked irredeemably bad. And like, unlike the other ones, it didn't look like fun campy. It just looks bad. It sort of I goes back know. and forth between like fun campy and then Busey was improving the entire movie. Like he didn't, yeah, he, he just is. made up his lines as as he went along. And I think that actually is probably the best part of that movie. Honestly, uh, the costume budget was really poor, so they had like a terrible looking werewolf that looked yeah, like a it's bear. Pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> I am kind of curious to watch that one. I'm really curious to watch pretty much all of these movies. So then uh, we're in that. <laughs> That yeah, phase that Eric is, mentioned was this is not actually the great so this phase. you could actually call this the Dino De Laurentiis phase because he he produced he produced quite a few of these and from my understanding regardless of what King actually did all he wanted was gore and blood so they would just make the directors reshoot everything to add more of these scenes hmm. into the thing so so that brings us to 1986 and the movie Maximum Overdrive King himself basically said if you want something done right you need to do it yourself so apparently Oops. he thought he could do what Stanley Kubrick and Brian De Palma. John Carpenter could not. He was wrong. <laughs> he directed that one. He could he sort, he could it, sort yes. more lines of coke than both those guys combined. Yeah. I'm assuming so he wrote yeah, the screenplay, true. too. Based off, I don't know if it It's based one. off of Trucks, which is a short story, <laughs> yeah. and then, yeah, he wrote the screenplay and directed it, and, yeah. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive which is the first one I've directed. Wow! A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. It was my first picture as a director, and you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. So it was nominated for two Razzies. <laughs> I was like, Oscar. Only two. Like, <laughs> hold my breath. For worst director and worst actor, who was uh, Emilio Estevez, is the lead. He was definitely not the worst performance. There's probably five or six that are much worse than that yeah. movie. Is but, that, what is that? Is that about sentient trucks? Yeah, what well, is that sort of, about? yeah. I'll get into that. It lost both of those awards to Prince for Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> so That is totally justified. Yes, that is very understandable. And that year there was a tie for Worst Picture with Howard the Duck. So <laughs> Maximum wow. Overdrive skated by. So it stars Emilio Estevez, Pat Hingle. Oh my God. And Yeardley Smith. 
the voice of Lisa Simpson, which is very obvious when she suddenly pops into the movie and you're like, oh, because I kept waiting for her. I was like, is that her? Because I didn't know what she looked like. I just know the voice <laughs> you of Lisa Simpson. And then she comes in. I'm like, oh, I think that's Lisa Simpson. And Pat Hengel is Commissioner Gordon from the Timber. So you watched yes. the whole movie, Chris? I watched about 40 minutes of the movie. <laughs> Uh, so the plot of this movie is every machine goes haywire, like every machine in the world. Including the ATM that curses Stephen King out. Yeah, of the <laughs> he has a cameo in this, as he does in many of his adaptations. So it's like cars, arcade games, carving knives. And the movie is scored by ACDC. Yeah, Stephen yeah. King was a big ACDC fan, so he got them to cr- wow. make like songs just for the movie. So, <laughs> so there's like scary yeah. scenes or horror scenes, but they're all scored with like awesome electric guitars (laughs) so it makes it seem like this is supposed to be like cool and even though it's like lawnmowers are running over children and stuff it's really there there are some good images in that movie but yeah the tone doesn't work yeah it's it's a disturbing movie because there are so many people being killed in horrific ways soda machine it's soda machine kills someone it just doesn't it doesn't have any like emotional gravity to it so that that makes it even more disturbing and for someone whose work really does, I think, deal with death in a pretty emotionally, like, interesting way, like, you know, Stand By Me is all about the emotions that you feel about death. It's surprising that his directorial <laughs> movie had none of that. It's just, like, car smash, kid's dead. It's really awful. Also, on this movie, the uh, director of photography, Armando Nanuzzi, who also did Silver Bullet and La Caja Fall. In one of the scenes, an electric lawnmower went out of control, struck a block of wood, and shot splinters out, which in- went into his eye. Yeah. And blinded him. He sued Stephen King and 17 others involved in the production. And Stephen King said of this movie, the problem with that film is that I was coked out of my mind and all through its production, I really didn't know what I was doing. Well, at least he has some self-awareness. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, So if you're wondering why Stephen King hasn't directed a movie since then... Yikes. That's it. My God, it's like Birdemic Bad, The I Happening. Can't wait. It's It's... It's on HBO Go. If you hate yourself, watch it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then the other notable movie from the 80s is 1989's Pet Cemetery, which we also watched some clips of. That is something, Mommy. <sighs> oh, Gage. Oh, Gage. I brought you something, Mommy. That was a big movie in my house. My mom watched it all the time. So you you got a lot of the pet movies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, but like, this does not seem to be a movie about haunted pets. At all. It's about haunted children. I asked my mom today. I've still not seen it. In anticipation of this episode, I asked my mom, why do you love Pet Cemetery?" She said she always loved, she loved creepy kids. Check. Check. Um, She thought that little boy was a good actor. It was Miko Hughes. It was Miko Hughes, yeah. He was a a child actor when we were growing up. In the early 90s. Oh, really? And she liked the idea that like you could uh, bury an animal and it would come back to life like a dead one but I'm like uh, demonically she's like yeah (laughs) did she ever try it (laughs) I hope not wait y'all why I'm filled with questions about this and not all of them are related to the fact that the lead star is uh, Denise Crosby Lieutenant Tasha Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation Um, why is cemetery spelled the way that it is 
it's just misspelled. No, I, like kids wrote kid, the cemetery. Kids, kids yeah, wrote that's it. why they explained it in the book. And they they the, had a cemetery mm-hmm. where they would bury their dead pets, and it was. Oh, like I thought a, it was like an inglorious bastard situation. Okay. No, like the the kids made the cemetery, and so it's like on a haunted Indian burial ground or something, and so they they're As they're all cemeteries are in the eighties. Yeah. yeah what is it? Do. Is it their dog like or their cat? Now I can't remember. The cat dies, and then they heard they can bury it there and it'll come back to life and it does and then it's demonic but for some reason they think it's a good idea when their kid next well, dies that yeah. they should do the same thing it's all about grief I think it's a, <laughs> this is like a, a story the book apparently is very good I've never read it but it's all about like grief and parent like you know regrets and parenthood I think and like also trying to bring things back is all about you know trying to to sort of redo things you've screwed up so yeah, the the scene where the kid dies is they didn't quite do it right, but it's it's pretty pretty disturbing. Yeah, I mean, even just watching it on YouTube, I was like, I knew this was a Stephen King movie, and it was a movie that scared people. So I was like, are they really gonna hit the little boy with the truck? Yeah, and they, they there, there's very few they movies did. that do stuff like that, so that, it's, it's interesting for that if nothing else. So that'll bring us to it. Uh, it was uh, aired on ABC November eighteenth and twentieth, nineteen ninety. It was a two parter. Um, it's directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, written by Lawrence D. Cohen, who is also the screenwriter of Carrie, um, based off of Stephen King's novel. That's a thousand billion. It's actually more than a thousand pages long. I think it's twelve hundred. One thousand one hundred thirty-eight. Oh my god! Um, it stars Tim Curry as Pennywise, uh, and the adults uh, are of the Losers Club are John Ritter, Harry Anderson. Annette O'Toole, Richard Thomas, Dennis Christopher, Tim Reed, and Richard Mazur. Um, obviously, John Ritter and Harry Anderson, I think, are the more uh, memorable cast members. Like and because Annette O'Toole, I think. What was Annette O'Toole in besides this? Just stuff? Like every other <laughs> 90s movie we were, we were actually talking about this before you got <laughs> I think it was like a law in the 90s that Annette O'Toole had to be cast she in every familiar, third movie. And I could not place her. That's the thing. She was like one of those character actresses who would never play like a really meaty role, but was in a lot of movies. Jonathan Brandis also played one of the young kids and Seth Green was Richie. I almost didn't recognize Seth Green because he is the tallest one of the kids. <laughs> and it was just so surreal looking to see like he like just looks tall in this movie also i think he pretty clearly has a different nose in this movie is than that he it has ever he looks like so he- does tim curry seth green in this movie looks like seth green's dad <laughs> <laughs> he was probably the same height in this movie that he is yeah now. so tim curry at this point had done rocky horror picture show clue annie the worst witch which was becky's favorite halloween themed tv movie Tremendous. when she was young Tremendous. um you know he was he played shakespeare in a tv miniseries like he was like prolific um so that's where he was when he played pennywise in this movie so he was a pretty well-known actor um so the novel is 1,138 uh, 1, pages, like Chris said. Um, the TV movie was originally developed as a four-part, eight-hour series. Whoa. Uh, but was made into a two-part miniseries that runs 192 minutes, which is a little over three hours. The ratings, it was a it was a huge, huge hit. It was it garnered 30 million viewers over Holy the two shit. days. Um, for comparison, the ratings for the Oscars in 2017 was 32 million. Uh, the new Roots miniseries that was in 2016 garnered 5.3 million, and it was seen as a success today. So, 30 million viewers was insane. 
I would like to say that uh, it aired after an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos originally. <laughs> Perfect. That's, that's <laughs> what a lead in. Opposite new episodes of Married with Children and Murder, she wrote. Oh, my God. And it was also 12 days before Misery hit theaters for... Oh. Stephen King that, that taking big, over the world. That was a big year. It has a current rating of 57% rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of those reviews are kind of recent now that the new movie came out. So people like went back to see what it was like. Um, one of the negative reviews at the time, there really I really couldn't find any negative reviews, but like some reviewers um, didn't like the special effects or the pacing, but most viewers seem to think that the first half is good and the second half is bad. Stephen King at the time said the series really surprised me by how good it was. It's a really ambitious adaptation of a really long book. So I think at the time, most people liked it. I think it was something they had never seen before. It was really creepy. Um, and I think that even if they had problems with the, the second half or the pacing or the special effects, like I think generally, like it was a huge hit. People liked it and it became like it's it's a cult classic. It certainly is. <laughs> so what did you guys think of watching this miniseries? I had a great time with this miniseries. I'm going to say like I was not expecting very much because I knew it was a TV movie from 1990. And my memory of TV movies from 1990 is not flattering to those movies. So the production value was actually a lot better than I thought. And just it was scarier than I thought it was going to be. Because I'd always heard how many kids were scared by it. But I thought it was probably just something that is scary only to children. And then as an adult, you're like, this is lame. And while it didn't exactly scare me, I still found like Pennywise really creepy. And I had no idea what the story was. So I was really surprised by the depth that it went into with the characters and all of the things that we've been talking about that Stephen King does so well. I had not really expected them to be present in this movie. So I was pleasantly surprised despite some you know, 90s melodrama cheesiness. Sort of lurking around my childhood was the idea of it is this really scary movie. So when I saw it at the time, I thought, I thought, you know, I think I was like 13. I saw, I thought it was pretty scary, but maybe not quite as scary as I had hoped, but I had already been well immersed in like horror movies by that point. So there was a lot to compare it to, but uh, yeah, I was, I, I admired how, what they did with the kids at the time. I thought it was sort of really true to life. I felt like they did a pretty good job. And I think J Jonathan Brandis was pretty good too. It might've been probably his best role, the, the late Jonathan Brandis. And I also remember I had seen John Ritter in a lot of stuff. So it was interesting to see him do, so, you know, he's always done a lot of comedy. So it was interesting to see him do a, a, a like sort of a dramatic role. In general, there's a lot going for this movie. Tim Curry's embodiment of that creature is excellent. Like, I can see why it became such a powerful symbol and image in pop culture. I do think that almost every aspect of this that is a TV movie aspect holds it down and to me completely prevented it from being scary at all from the kind of orchestral midi keyboard uh, <laughs> hits that happened and they come at like the exact moment when the scary thing is supposed to happen and they just really took me out of any potential for being scared simultaneously a lot of those scary moments like when the creature is actually attacking when you see his teeth become fangs and like be bared ready to bite you never once see him bite just that kind of actual scary moment is just completely not shown and again i think that can just as easily be chalked up to 
broadcast standards and practices than anything else. But when the ludicrousness of having a supernatural clown is the thing that you're relying on to be the instrument of terror to cut away from that actual physical pain that it involves uh, really did kind of fully undercut the terror and horror for me. Exactly. Go on, kiddo. Take it. Oh, you want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float I hated this movie. <laughs> I hated everything. Yeah, it was a rough ride. I oh my god, it was so boring. Oh my god, it, I was forty five minutes into it, and I was like, I can't believe how much more movie is left. It took me three nights to finish this. Oh, movie. I, I think joking. it was like four nights where I was like, I can't believe I have to watch this movie now. Like, I have to get through this movie because I'm never going to finish it if I don't put on a little bit of it every night. I just hated every second of it. Okay, that's not true. I <laughs> there were five seconds in the middle there. I think that the imagery is creepy of a clown in a sewer. Like, but that's yeah. but that's Stephen King and. Stephen King created that imagery of a clown down a sewer and he created the imagery of a clown in general, you know, terrorizing kids. And I think that is great. And that is that is a scary thought. But the filmmaking of it did no favors of making any of this scary. I think maybe a little in the beginning when there's like quick cuts. And I do appreciate that we see Pennywise right away. I wasn't expecting that. And there's like a quick cut of him like behind like the laundry that's hanging mm-hmm. outside. I thought that was like interesting. And I actually was like, oh, maybe I'm in for like a good ride here. <laughs> but that was pretty much it. Like there's no subtlety and there's nothing that was remotely scary that wasn't created by like Stephen King, I think. The one thing that I think just because of the moment I watched it was like, it's the shower scene. I don't even know if this is in the book. The shower is attacking one of the kids. And oh, then yeah. and then Pennywise yeah. comes out of a hole and the close-up on Tim Curry's face as Pennywise and he's looking directly into the camera and I thought that was one of the few like directorial choices that actually worked for me in this movie where he was staring at me and he's like I'm your worst nightmare I'm everything you're ever scared of I'll see you in your dreams and that's like the scene that I ended where I was going to go to bed after that scene and then I was laying in bed being like why did I watch that last (laughs) like why is that the scene that I ended on and so I was thinking of that for a while and I thought that was actually pretty scary like a scary to actually have pennywise stare right at you in in a very tight close-up but like it was so cheesy contra stand by me as similar as these movies are the same strength is not to be found at all in the ensemble casting of this nor in the writing of the human characters like there everything intriguing about this movie to me really is about the monster itself but again because the monster's strengths 
come from the flaws and fears and weaknesses of the human characters. Because those human characters are not well written, the monster is not as scary either. And we don't really spend time establishing sufficiently to me what each of these people is really afraid of and why. Whereas, like, Stand By Me really establishes what is messing with these kids' minds and hearts at this point in their lives. We really don't get that from the characters in it in any way that kind of resonated with me at all. It was a lot closer to just like, this is the TV movie exposition about my backstory and there's a scary jump cut now. (laughs) There's some exposition that was like, in case you forgot, I came here to be with you. I'm the cop and you're just a librarian. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for laying it out for for me. Thanks Thanks for all the exposition. Oh my god, this movie. Where do I even start? I had so many questions about the fundamentals of Pennywise. Like <laughs> That was the original title. The fun- <laughs> I, it wasn't Pennywise and Pound Foolish. Come on. Okay, I had all these questions. Like, why these children? Why a clown? Is he a ghost? W- did he used to be a real clown and now he's dead? Is he something else? And like, actually, a few days after I saw this, I went and saw the new version that's currently in theaters. And all those questions were answered. And so I went from hating... The, all of it, like the story and the movie, to just hating that 1990 version because any th- questions I had were were answered by in a in a great way by the new movie. And I haven't seen the new movie because I'm afraid. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I will see it on video, but I actually prefer when movies kind of don't explain things. To me, Stephen King is kind of about this place in childhood where in childhood you can be afraid of really mundane things. Like I was afraid of the light on like a dishwasher because it was orange and I thought it meant that it was on fire or something. Like you can be afraid of like the most ridiculous thing. And I really like that this movie gets at that like kind of unknowable thing. Like it doesn't explain what this is. And when you're a kid, you don't understand everything and you wouldn't know what this is. And it, it to me, it kind of plays as a metaphor for for fear in general and that it has no real definition and can't be really defined or conquered is that it's like all pervasive and well the things that i want to explain were like like um what are the rules because like sometimes he's a clown and sometimes he's not sometimes he's something else well and And like like it's things like that most of the movie he appears as what you are afraid of so Who's afraid of clowns? Who is the person who's Everybody. actually Everybody. Well, but that's that's not that's also not established in the movie, Chris. You know, it's like the and It just feels random. We that don't it's a spend clown. any time with Georgie, well, who's a, Jonathan Brandis's little brother who's the first person to get killed. He's a clown so, we, so that he can appeal to children. But but that is discordant with the rules of the game for the rest of that 190-hour movie. There's no consistency with why he's appearing the way he appears. I haven't seen the, the latest incarnation. I do think it's interesting, Becky, you said that it answered all your questions. Because I feel like horror today, especially in the last like 10, 15 years, I think so much of the genre is just trying to answer like every question people would have about any given thing or explaining it in twist endings or something like that. And I think that's interesting, but that's not necessarily my my favorite mode. I, I, don't, I don't remember the miniseries like being particularly explanatory or 
confusing. I think I just sort of accepted it, but I was, you know, like 13. So you're going to, you're going to accept things a lot more. I I remember it being a little bit of a disappointment after all the buildup, you know, from years of people mentioning it. Um, I'm not sure if that was a stylistic thing or if that was, you know, just, it wasn't scary enough for me. And I guess like, like, like Seth was saying that the timing of the scares and the way they did it production wise in terms of the sound, seems very dated now. Like I think they did that a little bit in the eighties, but that's not the way they do it anymore. They sort of build up the scares instead of punctuating them with, with, with music. So it definitely is a product of its time. And I mean, Tommy Lee Wallace was like, a, I think he worked on Halloween, but he's, he's like, his career is not that well distinguished. This might be one of, one of the high points. So uh, there could, that could probably come into play as well. Well, and I also think like the TV production aspects, just like everything is very brightly lit. Even oh, scenes super at night, bright. even yeah. scenes at night, even scenes that are outdoors. And again, it's like nothing sucks the scary out of a movie more quickly than insane amounts of light. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the lighting thing was a big deal because the television, you were never sure of the quality standards, so you just overlit everything. But it definitely hurts horror movies. And they tried to experiment, like in the 60s and 70s with shadows sometimes, but it would just it would appear like just blackness on the TV screen. So now we're fortunately living in our, our great, uh, you know, HD TV era, so you can you can do more well, shading. But even shows like Twin Peaks and X-Files that were starting around this yeah, time that's right. really yeah, yeah. began But that was considered to... very risky at the time. That's, yeah. that's true. Yeah. And that, that's fair as a justification of it. Because yeah, yeah, that you're very much right, and of course, like since the transition to digital, it's a whole different ballgame now. But still, it's like the I do find that there is a large amount of nostalgic love for this movie that I really don't think it deserves. I'm sorry, like, uh, like I would tell you, just look at. Tim Curry scenes on YouTube. <laughs> like, don't yeah. sit down and watch three hours of this. And, and honestly, I kind of wanted more of the child characters to get eaten and taken <laughs> away. I found a lot of them really fucking obnoxious and unmemorable at the same time. Chris, I wonder. I mean, I wonder if you just liked the idea of it and the story, but like, did you actually like watching it and the filmmaking? Or because then I wonder if you'll like. The, the new one that's out because it's just made better, but it has the same general story and metaphors and everything. Yeah, I agree with you guys that the filmmaking is nothing exceptional. For me, it didn't really get in the way of enjoying it because I found the story so strong and not necessarily the screenwriting of it. I mean, I think some of the screenwriting is pretty good and a lot of it is a little bit melodramatic or obvious, but just the strength of the story really carried through and how interesting the story is that there are all these kids and it takes really like a lot of the themes of Stand By Me and makes them a lot more like horrific and explicit that all of these adults in the town are ignoring these horrible things happening to children and just pretending like it's not happening. And I think that that happens a lot in life. And when you're a kid, you feel like adults aren't seeing like what you're seeing and aren't experiencing things. And the world is scary to you. And it doesn't feel like adults are really appreciating that or making room for that all the time. So I really enjoyed that as a metaphor. And just the fact that these kids, again, kind of like Stand By Me, is they all had to band together and they all grow up to be... Um, they're all kind of overachievers, but they're also really lonely for the most part. They're in mostly bad relationships and that they all are kind of lost and only really end up finding themselves by coming back together and dealing with these childhood fears. And well, on a thematic level, that really worked for me. But see, I th- for me, the thematic element that those were all that all those characters were hinting at, And what seemed to be the real driver of the story of this movie is 
like pre-adolescent sexual anxiety, um, of specifically of a sexual nature. And then the way that the monster is defeated is ultimately through a penetrative act of like shooting the slingshot into it. Um, but like it really specifically, this it stand by me to a lesser extent, but really this one seemed to be about pre-adolescent, like, sexual anxiety but again the fact that it's a tv movie meant that every aspect of that that could be shown in the lives of the kids had to be cut out and i also know that there is as we mentioned earlier like a child orgy scene and i think this is after they yeah i think it's it's after they kill the monster which makes it even more yeah Yeah. they're trying to get out of the sewers yeah it's it it doesn't make sense he was on cocaine it doesn't really make (laughs) sense And then, like, there were other things about it that were just really silly and kind of apropos of nothing. So, like, every policeman in this universe is, like, a 1920s Irish stereotype. So I just called all the policemen O'Brady and O'Shaughnessy. What was up with the Chinese food scene? That was, like, straight out of, like, a trauma movie with, like, the fortune cookies, like... Growing. Haunted fortune cookies. Like it was, was like another gross thing in a way that it was like unappealing to watch, like not scary, but like ew. <laughs> oh god, I hated this movie. So like Chris, like you seem to like have gotten something out of it, but like would you ever watch it again? Because it, it made every- me more want to read the book. Like I would probably read the book before I would watch this movie again. But I, it did make me curious to see the new movie because I really do connect to the themes of the story, I I find it interesting, I mean, to talk about some of the connections to Stand By Me, the main character grows up to be a horror writer. He, both of stories are framed as him, like, looking back on his childhood. And isn't part of it in this that he's adapting his own book into a screenplay? I I think there was, like, something mentioned offhand where he's, like, adapting his own. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was just funny because it was, like, even more on the nose, Stephen, Mm -hmm. Stephen King. Yeah, the main character has a dead brother uh, in both. In both, it's like these kids can only really survive childhood by coming together. They're all, in this one, they're more even explicitly, like, abused by their parents in a lot of ways. Their parents are pretty universally horrible, again, in in this. And the adults that they become, I think it kind of mirrors Stand By Me, is that we were talking about the ending where Richard Dreyfuss is not that kind of parent, but is actually, you know, a good parent to his children. And I think not. it's interesting that none of these people become parents in the story. It's like you have to... I think the kind of metaphorical uh, element to this is that, like, you need to work out your childhood demons before you become a parent or you'll pass them on to your kid. Yeah, there's, like, an arrested development thing there. Like, they're all stuck being that age. Mm-hmm. I really think that you will like the new movie and you'd probably like the book. Like, just everything that you like about it, I think that I agree, but it's it's just st- struck down with awful filmmaking and awful acting and awful directing that I just, like... I think I just had such low expectations <laughs> that it was, like, it worked fine for me. I didn't think it was, like, great, but the strength of the story just kind of carried me through it. It carried you uh i floated i, I floated <laughs> there was one more moment i wanted to bring up which is how the fuck did this guy think that a bike ride could like knock someone out of a catatonic state that was ridiculous and how did that, <laughs> was that actually the work that yeah. was the ending like it and ended I and i just so, went boo yeah that was the one 
particular moment where I was like, oh, that's bad. Like, so bad that I did not enjoy that oh, moment. Oh, God. Yeah, like, Billy and his middle-class mullet. Oh, really, my God, his hair. Yeah, he his had, hair. I wrote it down. It's like he had that, he had a middle-class mullet, which was, like, really polite and demure <laughs> up in front. But it was definitely, like, the ponytail of upwardly mobile guys of 1990. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, and it's... But it really is, like, it's beyond just the surface level of it. Because all of these storytelling choices, again, I think just kind of undermine the inherent um, meatiness of those thematic elements. Because, Chris, I really agree with you. The All of these elements to it are disturbing. That there is, like, there are the raw ingredients for a really scary kind of movie and scary in the sense that it sticks with you whether you're afraid of clowns or not. I just think that the way that it was pulled off at this time really didn't find the right way to cook all those ingredients together. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not going to, like, die on the hill of loving <laughs> this movie. But the hill's right there, Chris. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll die because it's the Stephen King episode, but um, I would just <laughs> like... Come back to haunt us. <laughs> Train's coming. Just like to note the kind of um, sad irony that Stand By Me stars River Phoenix, and this one stars Jonathan Brandis, who both came to tragic young ends and feels very appropriate for a Stephen King. And honestly, there were some other strong performances in these, but I... I was really, really impressed by Jonathan Brandis's performance yeah. in this. I um, cannot agree. I thought he was terrible. Wow. Well, so see, I, I thought the stuttering tick was really badly done, but I felt like his, I thought his acting kind of elevated it wow. for me. I thought everyone was terrible and just ranges of terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, what's her, uh, Annette O'Toole, doesn't she have a line that's like, why is it so mean? That's <laughs> like, not the greatest line. I'll yeah, no, the, yeah, the dialogue is horrendous. And every time they wake up from a flashback, they're just like, oh, oh God, the memory, the memory is shaking my head. That's just like how everyone woke up from bad dreams in the 80s. <laughs> the pollution standards were very different back then, so, you know, the smog yeah. just really got to people's brains. So that was it. And Stand By Me. That's it. I think that the consensus, we all seem to like Stand By Me, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that totally holds up. Like, I didn't think it was like a 1980s movie. Like, I thought oh. it was... I, I think it, it, I think it definitely it feels like an 80s movie to me, but that doesn't make it bad necessarily, yeah. yeah. It has a mature perspective, I yeah. think, which is refreshing in a movie about children. Yeah, and we can also, I want to just note that Rob Reiner also directed Misery. He's one of the few directors that he has done every genre Oh, and especially at this time, like it's he did. What were the other movies he did? Like right around that time, he did. This is Spinal Tap. He did, yeah, Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, Princess Bride. Then there's Misery. Then there's Stand by Me. I mean, what he was genre hopping so much, and and they're all great. Wait, did he? Did he also do When Harry Met Sally? Yes, yes, yeah, amazing. It's crazy. We need a Rob Reiner episode. Like I know, good. I do think Stand by Me has kind of the hallmarks of what Rob Reiner has always done in his career. Mm -hmm. And as for it, would you recommend like somebody watch this? Because I would just say go on YouTube and look at. I like I like Pennywise and I like Tim Curry, um, but I would say just go on YouTube and watch him. And I go for a campy horror movie. Sure, why not? I mean, I wouldn't because it's three hours long. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every minute of those three hours. Jesus Christ! I can't believe you. Yeah, I literally can't believe you. I was so bored. Oh my god! And you know what? I was bored. 
and there was so much clown. Like the clown came up a lot. <laughs> a lot of clown. So a lot clown. of clown. The fear factor for the clown had like diminishing returns because like, oh my God, I've seen the clown like 10 times. It's not scary anymore. We get it. He like, has sharp teeth. <laughs> we never see a single surface that he plants those teeth in. Is there more or less clown in the remake? It's got to be less, right? It's okay. It's only an... It's a two-hour movie. Okay. Um, I guess I would say less. There's there's ample clown. There's ample clown. There's ample clown. But it builds better. It's just better in general. I highly recommend the new one. It's not perfect, but like I highly recommend it. I wanted to see the Carrie uh, Fukunaga version, but I guess we'll never, never. I'm see sure that some one. elements of it are still there. Yeah, he, he gets writing credit. So how much of it like is very placed in the '80s? Because he apparently the he, whole thing is the '80s. No, no, but I mean like, like how much of it is embodied by the time? Like, is there a lot of references? Does yeah. it feel very? 80s? Yeah. Because I think that's what he added there because are. he he was one that shifted the time frame. There are a lot of it, okay. it works so well that it's now in the '80s and not in the '50s. Yeah, well, because it's, it's present hard. day when they do the adults next, like yeah, that and it's be... hard for anyone today to really relate to the '50s, like as like a memory because we're all no, like, it's it's yeah. perfect um, that it's in the '80s and there are a lot of '80s references in it. It it feels very much like Stranger Things, honestly, which is very like the question is which which came well, which came sure first? Yeah. star right Finn Wolfhard yeah and yeah. The, and one of the kids from Stranger Things is in the movie it really it's Ouroboros <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is what it is, actually. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, our Stephen King podcast. Happy Halloween. <laughs> On the next episode of When We Were Young, we're going to be looking back at seasons one through ten of The Simpsons. <laughs> so if you're a big Simpsons fan and you want to follow along, or if you're not and you just want to follow along, um, I don't know, watch a bunch of the classic episodes. Have a cow. Do some, do some Googling about what's the classic ones, Marge and the Monorail. Uh, Marge versus the monorail, um, King Size Homer. I mean, there's a million. So, uh, (laughs) I sent them a list of literally like 50 episodes, and I said, "Here's the 10 you have to watch, and here's a bunch of other good ones that I'm going to watch anyway because I've been watching it every day since I was born." You guys, Becky has somewhat of a passing affinity for this (laughs) franchise, (laughs) which we will certainly get into when we return to When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles. California. If you've enjoyed your time with us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. If you have suggestions for the next episode of the show or something you think we should cover eventually, connect to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. You can tweet us on Twitter at show or email us at gmail at www.yshow at gmail.com. If you want to help us defray the cost of a show that we bring to you entirely for free, you can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. I'm making out with a middle-aged clown that I think is a beautiful woman. What? (laughs) Just say your name. I don't like saying my name. And thank you to our guest, Eric, for coming by and uh, king with us. It's been a pleasure. These are a few of our favorite kings. What's your favorite Stephen King movie? The Shining. Yeah, easily. Shawshank. Oh, wow. I'm outnumbered. We'll see if Becky's outnumbered on the next episode. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone.